0: Massive thank you, as always, to our top-tier patron Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Freud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer, Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So... If you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Tell your friends about us and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. Massive thank you as always to L for organizing our monthly reading groups and episode discussions, which you, dear listener, can join in too. Just head over to our Eventbrite page, and the link is in the show notes.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the mental health field, too often, we've made
0: it seem as if it's just in your head. head.
2: The landlord can hijack the rent by 20 percent. That impacts people's mental health. Can't
0: have a profit-driven mental
2: health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy.
1: This episode is talking about the mental health crisis and attending issues that we see in our youth, especially post-pandemic. Go ahead, Derek. So
2: I'm a teacher. I work with at-risk populations as well as high functioning ones. I also work with specifically a hybrid program, which attracts a lot of students who have social anxiety. And I'm going to have a... When we talk about the state of mental health with young people, one thing I'm going to say is we can't disaggregate that from a bunch of social inputs. And... General learning inputs because I have just, I am going to risk in this episode, sound like an old boomer yelling at clouds, but I'm getting tired of reports that are trying to downplay how severe a lot of the evidence we have right now is. And then when someone who's politically questionable, like Jonathan Heights, starts talking about, for example, the suicide epidemic and rates of depression, particularly depression amongst young women, which is self reported, but at an all time high. Everyone like goes on and gives their opinion as to why that's the case, and most of them are
0: frankly facile. You mean that they shouldn't be getting married and just having kids and just being happy? (laughs) Honestly, when I think about this, I think about what left feminists
2: said on Twitter, which I also found ridiculous. Like that it was just capitalism or it was just the patriarchy. I'm like, well, the patriarchy has been a pretty constant for a hundred years. So that's an explanation that's both probably true in some way, but doesn't actually tell us a damn thing. Conversely, when you read Hype, Hype blames it on social media. Social media does not help. There's plenty of evidence for that going back a decade. But it is hard to blame it solely on that because social media's effects are partially related to its content. And its content is socially produced. Therefore, like saying that it's all social media's fault begs the question, why is this form of mediation leading to this particular kind of content? When it comes to education, which is what I deal with, we also have a problem of, frankly, general literacy. And I can go into that, but literacy has basically been stagnant from the 1960s to 2014 and 2015, so this can't be blamed on Trump. This can't be blamed on... It can't be blamed on any one factor. It can't even be blamed on TikTok. You started seeing a decrease in higher-level students being able to read beyond a fourth-grade level. And then post-COVID, now this can be blamed on COVID, so I don't know how long it'll stick. We have started seeing a decrease in students being able to read at lower levels. So you started seeing problems with students as young as fourth-grade meeting basic literacy skills. Now, to get really cynical about that, and this is a true fact, for example, prison planning is one of the factors that a state looks at when it's looking at how many prisons to build. And we can think of this as, how are you gonna house your so-plus population? They look at fourth grade reading rates. There's a complex causal chain there. I'm not, I'm just pointing that out. In regards to a lot of what's happened in schools right now, the, there's a politicization of social and emotional learning and trauma-based practices. I am somewhat skeptical that they work, mostly because the people being asked to do them have a two-hour training on them once every four years and, right. and are being asked to implement them in a slew of things that aren't designed for that implementation and inter- and implement things like restorative justice practices, which... Frankly, and again, a lot of people might consider this a conservative stance on my part, but I'm going to say it, don't work in a public school environment because the amount of resources it requires to do restorative justice correctly is actually higher than in traditional beauty of education. But it's used to basically do nothing. So you have a whole lot of social conditions that are magnifying. At the same time, we got objective evidence that kids bully each other less, that they, there's a lot less bigotry amongst them. And while there is plenty of evidence that, for example, this current anti-trans stuff has made the entire LGBTQ community, which is already pretty vulnerable to suicide, particularly out in the Mountain West, get worse, so I, I don't want to say there's no immediate inputs, there absolutely are. It's not explanatory of all that we're seeing. And my professional... Work is not directly in this. I'm not a student health counselor. I'm a department head. I work mostly in literacy, but I've just seen, for example, and and that these are just ballpark numbers. It, it usually happened when I started teaching 15 years ago, 16 years ago, and this was in a different state. And state rele- state suicide ideation, hospitalizations, and suicide attempts do vary. I mean, Utah is one of the highest, but you did not see suicidal ideation, say minority students, very much. You also only had usually one or two students hospitalized for an attempt a year. And this is most teachers have between 180 and 250 students. So that's not insignificant in a country of you know, 320 million. So understand the numbers of that. It's still a lot. But now, In my program, now my program, kids. a lot of kids who use my program have anxiety and whatnot, so that's probably an exacerbating factor. But since around 2014, we've seen massive growth in suicidal ideation hospitalizations. On average, a teacher will now have three to five a year. I've had as many as 20, and I say that in a year. So that's just the ones we know about. That's the ones where someone's been hospitalized there has been... And one of the ironies about this, because of the change in U.S. law, our medical and personal information requirements. Teachers often don't even know when this has happened to students because they often can't be told unless they're, unless they are a teacher record. So the school can't mobilize to stabilize this because it's blocked by law.
0: How much can, for good reason, how much can a school do anyway in that sort of situation, right? Because the school, the school environment, clearly has a significant influence on a person's life because they're spending a certain amount of percentage of their time there. But presumably, yeah, school might be a factor in some of the suicide ideation. But I assume it's coming from somewhere else and/or life circumstances. If we are
2: seeing a decrease in reported bullying and an attitude where bullying is not okay, we cannot assume that like, school bullying is the primary cause, right? Because we have data for that too. So, what does that mean? Another thing that you have to remember in the US context is the child services is basically, unless you're extremely poor or extremely rich, you can afford private child services, all provided through the school system. Like our social welfare net for children in the United States has mostly been backdoor down through the school system. That's where there are counselors, that's where there are that's where we can guarantee meals, that's where most of the child care is. And in COVID, it made it very explicit because basically there was a social crisis because of lack of child care, not just because of lack of education. Let's be honest about that. And across the board what you saw is, well there are no resources once the school shut down and while that's somewhat true in Britain and France and the older countries in Europe it is not nearly as true as it is in the United States
0: yeah w- w- one of the things I be interested to pick your brain on this is a slight aside so perhaps i'll cut this out uh-huh. because the focus is more on the sort of mental health thing but a while back we did an episode and this is all to do with resources in class right we had a child clinical psychologist she'd written this book and it was about self-directed learning and challenging some of the principles of what school is for now granted the focus is much more on Brit than America. But she used sort of various examples from around the world. And one of the things she was talking about with literacy was that, and again, I'll stress, this is about resources and class. It was more entertaining, the idea that there's clearly better ways of doing things out there, but it requires obviously money and time and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that was quite, not necessarily alarming, but surprising was this thing about that in the particular contexts when kids weren't pushed to learn to read that they eventually would given that the material is around them as they're growing up that's a big caveat that there's actually all this stuff around them that would stimulate them that there would be really late readers like it wouldn't be till their teens like they're 14 or 15 and then they would just dive into books and love books and then run off to university and study English literature or something like that but in the sort of traditional school system that would be incredibly alarming right you have to achieve certain targets by a certain point in time and so I'm wondering what your response to that idea is that someone might start reading from just for, out of their own desire to do it, versus what your experience has been, what you're seeing, what you're talking about with the literacy rate not going anywhere since the 1960s. Do you have any sort of thoughts on, or reflections on any of that stuff?
2: I have evidence beyond school children. So, like, we, we've seen decline in reading rates and decline in the in the ability for vast parts of the population to read comprehensible text for a while. However... In general, I was also a late reader, and I'm going to start reading until it's about 10 years old. The catch to this is that most educational research done in universities, actually, they'll admit, they'll put the caveat on this as well. It's based off of, we we know that you need resources, etc. I'm going to sound like Freddie DeBoer for a second, but they're actually really only studying a certain class of students. One of the things that we have seen now, this is where I am going to sound like an internet humorist, is we have compounding problems with literacy. So everybody in broad society reads less, just in general. And there's plenty of reasons why most of it has to do first with television, then with computing, then with social media
0: all together, and all of those over time to meet with the visual media. Um, Hang on, do you, just as a side then, do you think that's part of the draw? Because you're, the stuff that you make is super engaging, but you're often referencing books, right? Are people paying <laughs> to have your interpretation of books that they don't want to read? Yes. And they also don't know how to contextualize what's really rare.
2: That's also why you have all these weird political movements that are sprouting up with people making pretty bizarre claims because they're making literature available for free and increasingly good information resources on anything are behind paywalls. That's a newish development, but it's one that's pretty serious. And this is not to say, I'm not actually one of these people who think that everyone needs to go and read the classics. That's not really my point. Although there are a lot of benefits to a classical education, but my point is more that if you have students around books, there's a window when they start to read that's as late as, as you said early teens. If they are exposed to books, they will pick that up. However, if they are not exposed to books, and there is a cultural norm of which books are useless, and I will say that it is. This is anecdotal, but I have seen a marked increase in students in my creative writing classes and whatever who say that they do not
0: read. And my first response is, why do you want to write? (laughs) (laughs) But hang on i imagine business books must be really popular because aren't business courses like the like most subscribed to courses whether that's i don't know at university level or or lower as it were surely this sort of rich dad poor dad like how to be fucking wealthy (laughs) and dominate everyone like those kind of books i feel like if people are going to reach for a book presumably that's a way in to reading for some people right
1: i think that's only a way into people that have a certain amount of a certain level of career a certain level of money
0: i don't know i think they're aspirational aren't they isn't this whole thing of like regardless of where you are on the economic ladder isn't it this thing of it fits alongside the prosperity gospel vibe stuff right
1: I have never come across a person that didn't at least have some money to invest at some point in their life ever pick up one of those books.
2: I've seen people who picked it up through a board, but I think we overestimate that demographic. Which that board that lives in is one of the the most best books of all time. Ironically, the guy who wrote it, Sungy. Only became wealthy by selling books about how to become wealthy. And a lot of the advice <laughs> in it is actively terrible. But yeah, I have a brother who got into that. But I, my family is actually an interesting class intersection here. And I don't know when we talk about this, but I will on this show. I have two brothers who are high school dropouts, one brother who at this point has a PhD in physical therapy. Which one do you think reads rich to that poor dad? That's a good question. The PhD in physical therapy. Two high school dropouts are not going to touch it. They do not have those aspirations. And you're not seeing those amongst the guys. So what do I mean by that? Most of the students I teach, and I teach a pretty interesting slice of the United States. Utah is a relatively prosperous state. And it does have poverty, of course. But actually, compared to a lot of the other places I've lived in the United States, it's poverty rates are fairly low. It still has, because religious institutions are fairly integrated external to the state social safety net that is religious between the Catholic church and the LDS. So there is that as unique here. But I teach in a school of, that is a, it's not a charter school, it's a public school program, but it's for an entire district. And the district spans, like a lot of districts in Utah around the urban areas, both very poor and very well-off parts of the county. So I have a cross-section of nouveau riche tech people and people who have made money off of land speculation. And I point that out because that's a kind of wealth. And as a teacher, one of the sad things I can tell you is I can tell people's class by the way their parents are, more often than not. And I think most people who have a lot of experience with large sectors of the population can do this But, like, with the wealthy, it really matters how they're wealthy. (laughs) There's Mm -hmm. different traits. Um, So, if we're doing like sociological analysis and you're talking about aggregate trends, like, newborn rich people in the suburbs tend to be conservative, but they also tend to be highly indulgent with their children. Um, And so, I teach a lot of those. And then I teach a lot of like poor Latin and Polynesian immigrants and a lot of generation poor, like, white Mormons. So I teach all those groups, right? I have also in different times taught the mostly black schools, but the racial demographics out here in the West is different. And one of the things I hate about the way we report stuff about, say, people of color, is that we assume all the racial and cultural patterns are the same and basically based off black people. They absolutely are not. So, for example, gender dynamics between different core minority groups are very different. For example, in black families, there's a much higher tendency to educate women than in, say, Latin families. Now, all of this is dangerously close to being essentialized. So I want to say this, too. I will tell you, in aggregate, a lot of these stats are true. But when people try to reduce them down to the individual and educators, they tend to make horrible mistakes. So, again, in any one context, it's very different. So we talk about Latin students. I teach Venezuelan, Chicano, New Mexican immigrants, Salvadorian immigrants, etc. And also because I happen to live in Mexico and speak Spanish, although not well, but enough to know the differences between the dialects and stuff. I can tell people's class background in their home country. And there are dramatic differences there too. No one in the United States school system is actually studying that that grant. Nobody. Those studies do not exist. I've looked for them. All right. What are we dealing with when we deal with literacy rates amongst English language learners from X specific country within a subgroup? Now, there are some like broad ones, like the difference between Asian students, Latin students, et cetera, the difference between black students who speak a vernacular of of English or poor white students, et cetera. One of the interesting things I remember about African American vernacular debates, which used to be called the Bonics, is that I came from a social class in the South that understood it. So people would talk about it wasn't... And there's reasons. The reason why they're actually trying to file it under a different language back in the 90s was for funding. Because there's more funding for language learning than there was for helping students catch up. I got into the Stuart Hall code switching thing and validation and validation of an own language while teaching people to speak, quote standard English, which I, there is no standard English anywhere, but particularly in the United States. But let's just say white middle-class English, right? Uh, And I got into teaching people to code switch and talk about validation of home language, but you have to treat it like EL. And how I did that was I did use EL techniques. So for people who don't know my acronyms here, I'm just talking about English language learners. You just treat it as like you have two languages, even though they're both varieties of English very effective, very validating. People know they're putting on the quote, white voice or whatever, but they know what they're doing. But again, cultural trends are different. Generational poverty trends are different. Accesses are different. So one of the things, to bring it back to you, the thing about books in the home, I just need to remind people in the Southeast in the United States, where still the great majority of African Americans are, I... My babysitter, because we were very poor white people, and I think this was an old black woman who was illiterate. She was illiterate because they didn't have the school debt. Um, she had no social security number because they didn't give those to black people in the 30s and 40s. Had no way to really get benefits from that. And had grown up as a sharecropper aide. That was in the 1980s. right? Why am I bringing that up? There's no way that the first or second generation of her kids had access to the things to just spontaneously start picking up literacy. And she was a smart woman. She learned how to read, I think, in her 70s. But I say that because for a lot of people today, that fact feels very distant. Because that's the 1930s, almost 100 years ago. But My point bringing bring that up is, yeah, but the generation raised by those people are in their 40s and 50s. So you're only three to four generations out from massive systemic poverty and underprivilege. in the case of the black community. The gains there have been actually astronomical. So one area where we've seen a lot of gains and like college attendance and stuff like that. But here's an interesting factor. that that I think that to bring about a mental health issue. I mentioned earlier, suicidal ideation amongst minority groups in the United States was generally pretty low. One of the reasons that people have positive for this, and they've never been able to prove it, but that being a marginalized community actually strengthened community ties through general opposition. And so there were informal social network supports for people. This is actually being studied about like impoverished cultures in general. And uh, there's a lot of sociology. Sociology is dangerous. There's a tendency to overgeneralize from it. But there's a lot of sociology that talks about like how formal community structures are relatively intact amongst impoverished groups who aren't highly urbanized, And even some places that are. And that seems to be a good check on suicidal ideation. But it's not true anymore. Meaning, and the atomization and alienation of younger students does not seem to be as set off by the old community ties. Meaning the alienation that we see amongst, say, middle class people is becoming more and more common even amongst poorer people. And that's greatly concerning because... People are the, usually the one resource poor people have. So there's whole things about like the way, if you grow up relatively impoverished, how you will work a lot harder to maintain relationships um, because that's, that is your wealth. That is your means of survival. It's totally rational. But if that alienation and social fragmentation is like now even undoing the kind of counter tendencies that happen in poverty you now have a group of people opening up to the kinds of problems that you see in middle-class people with even less resources.
0: Wow. And also, I can imagine that going to the social media thing, uh, having this being more connected than ever, but actually what you're being exposed to is presumably just a whole bunch of things just being rubbed in your face, right? Like the COVID thing was a prime example of to to my mind, at least maybe what I was seeing was these super rich billionaires just getting richer and richer during that whole period. Meanwhile, everyone's just scrambling to put their lives back together or whatever. And there's people delivering food and all the resources that you need that are being told they're essential workers and then being discarded and doing this dangerous work. And it just felt so the system is obviously unfair, but it particularly during COVID, it felt so in your face. And so I can imagine that I don't know, like having access to just other people's lives, but even celebrities and seeing them on that level. It's what's the saying that comparison is the thief of joy? <laughs> I'm sure yeah. that must play a part. I mean, it's a driver of certain
2: kind of alienation. This is where my like, kind of strict Marxism comes in, but the alienation of worker from worker is because of the striving and competition in, in ankle which tends to break down communities. And so one of the things, I, when we talk about social media, it's a lot of these t- trends, I think, and here I'm going off of research, it's not directly related to my job, and here it's, it is more speculative, but I have stats to back up some of the assertion. We've seen these trends since the 1960s. to uh, the first downturn of Fordism and the end of like the social compact period in U.S. life. And it's interesting because I wish someone did a comparative study, and it's getting harder and harder to do as we are further and further out of like social attitudes during the 1950s and 60s between the UK, Europe, and Americans tied into their wealth strata. All right. Because all Americans truly were relatively prosperous compared to Europeans. Now in the 1990s, uh, being the height of the first period neoliberalization. I say first period because the second period after 2001 to 2007 is a very different period. It would be interesting to see because that's when you start really seeing these exacerbations of impoverishment in the United States and wealth inequalities being more generalized and much higher than that. There were societies that were higher in the 1990s, like China, for example, which is more equal than the United States now, but in the 1990s, lots was higher. Believe it or not, we're really the dumbest period. So, the, you could do interesting studies on the effects of that. I don't know that they've been done, and I also think they're going to be harder and harder to do the further out you are, because you're basically going to have to extrapolate from evidence, from like literary evidence, from any sociological studies, what those things are, you can't do active research because people now, even if they looked at that time period, are not under those conditions. You can't just ask them what they thought and get an honest answer. Because they don't probably, it, you're, you don't have access to that, even yourself, after 20, 30 years. So we don't know. And that's something that I mean, one of the things to get back to something we mentioned very early when we talk about children and, and things like suicide is the, in the beginnings of this current suicidal ideation wave, right, which was in the mid aughts teens, there was a lot of pushback for people, on people like me who were really worried that we, our standard of comparisons were the 90s and the early aughts. And the 90s and the early aughts were interesting because you actually did have a massive decline and teen suicides. And it seems to have come from awareness, like awareness of teen suicide, being on guard for it, et cetera. And, but that stopped. And you can't, and at first I was like, okay, maybe they have a point. Maybe it is just a return to the norm. Maybe we're just not getting the gain from awareness anymore. But now we're looking at things. No, things are higher than they've been since this since we've been recording these stats. Here's a fact that blew my mind. Youth deaths are up, right? Your immediate thoughts are, okay, wax, alcoholism, drug overdoses. Get this, it's also increased with heart attacks. Wow.
1: Yeah. When they're
2: 25. Jesus.
0: And that's not just in the US, by the way. It's also in the UK. Is that chronic stress or like bad diets or? Well, we don't really know. Like
2: it does not seem to be directly tied to the obesity academic. One of the things about the obesity academic, for example, is people have been portraying that it was going to lead to this massive decline in life expectancy. We are seeing a life expectancy decline in the United States, but it's not actually to obesity related diseases. If you're in a southern state right now, your life is likely to be like almost a decade shorter because of poor health care, alcoholism, drug overdoses, and Jesus. That's what's low on the average life well, expectancy in those areas. And that's, uh, those are the poorer states too, which also, as I'm saying, means that the whole like impoverishment is not actually comorbid with suicidal ideation. that used to be traditionally true, no longer true. People are dying deaths of despair. And we're seeing evidence of that in younger people, but we don't know why. One of the things it's hard to say is, okay, you say stress, but what's causing the stress? Kids now are less likely to work. They have less homework. There's more competition for everything, but a lot of kids just choose not to compete. So there's fewer kids going to college for the first time in forever. And not just in raw numbers, because you'd expect that anyway, because the current generation is smaller, but also in relative numbers. A lot of the growth in U.S. colleges comes from foreign students. So what is that telling you? And it's very complicated to know. So my answer would be like, we have evidence for all of it and none of it. There's other comorbid things too, like... More people, like there might be more people on drugs with heart stress for other things. There are knockoff effects of drugs, both licit and illicit. H- however, just to throw another wrench in, the, in this,
0: drug use amongst youth has declined. So we can't really blame that either. One of the things that's really interesting is the choosing not to compete because, yeah, how does that present itself? Because on one hand, I can imagine that. It makes it's a completely logical decision. As you said, like, striving or competition breaks communities, which I think is a really interesting observation. But you can see how when you see the state of things, you'd be like, yeah, I don't want to play this game, it's fucked. And so there's a wisdom in it, and there is something about checking out, which is like self-protection, right? But on the other hand, there's also where do you go from there? If you're not going to compete, what do you do? It gets toxic. Let's talk about incels, for example. Non-competition.
2: That is relying on the bitterness of non-competition. Like it's almost a cult like mentality. Very hard to break the ball out of. I know people who like literally their job is to work and try to do this. And part of it is because some of the things that the incels believe about their prospects aren't wrong. Who they're blaming is wrong. Right? Blaming women put it this way there's been a feminization of academia until the higher levels this i think is actually proof of what we might call patriarchy but what i mean by that is like you have increasingly high numbers of women going to college that you see this everywhere until you get to a phd programs where it floats back to favoring men but if you think about how few people are in phd programs it's not like this is a general benefit to men there's just a structural sexism in universities the university life is Incredibly hard families. And women can have people with uteruses, let me speak trans-inclusive here, can have children. And that complicates them greatly in the academia. Conservatives will sometimes use to say, oh, it's not really sexism because I mean sexism is bigotry and not sexism is a structural impediment. But, okay, but what does that mean? You have a ton of men who don't go to college. Okay, they don't see the point in it. They see that it they can rack up a massive amount of debt, but they're unlikely to get jobs in the fields that it would benefit them for the most part, unless they go very far into it. A lot of people's experience of school is it's their first interaction with the state, unless you're one of the few people who also have family members in the prison system, which in the United States, you must remember, touches one in 10 people. But still, there's reasons why people hate school. Like I always tell people, teachers aren't cops, but we also aren't not. The reason why we're not cops is we can't just shoot you. Know.
0: That's, <laughs> like, a whole of, that's a whole other aspect of this as well, isn't it? You talked about depression, suicide, anxiety, heart attacks, school shootings, right? Yeah. I saw some chart the other day. It's like over 600 a year now or something. It's mad.
2: Yeah, although, okay, I'm going to say something that maybe is going to get me in a little bit of trouble. Most of that 600 are damn related. You hear about the ones that aren't notice you only hear about somebody a year that's because they're not gang related they're not explainable under those kinds of activity in the 1980s which is not a time people think about a high number of school shootings there was a ton of them they were all gang right
1: Um, yeah it's like the mass shooting narrative in general a lot of what gets labeled by definition mass shootings a lot of it is like domestic disputes
2: yeah, it, there's a school up the street from me that's on that list, That out, right outside of the school. There was a drug deal-related shooting that killed two teenage students, or three teenage students. No, two teenage students died and one was shot and survived. That's on that list, right? And should be. But when we only focus on, like, the random shooter events, we're not really looking at what's driving that. Um, right. Which, by the way, is uh, the drug war and handguns. Still, even though the drug wars gotten better in the United States, still exists. So that's what drives I'm not in theory against police abolition. I think defunding police is dumb. And by that, you're going to take the money away from the people, with all the guns. But they sell all the guns. I want you to think about how that's going to go for you. <laughs> <laughs> like, in a very right. basic sense. So I was like, you either go hard and replace this institution entirely or... You reform it, you can't half ass in the middle, but regardless of my stance on that, what we can see for sure is that despite liberalization, despite some finally pushing back on drug war, despite decriminalization of marijuana or the United States, there's a whole violent gray economy that we have subjected all right people and I've been accused of being racist talking about this, but my pain is not that it's, oh, it's mostly poor minorities. It's not mostly poor minorities. even Statistically speaking, it's not. But there's a whole violent economy around this that we don't look at. It disproportionately affects young people. Disproportionately affects the very poor. It disproportionately affects the vulnerable, new immigrants, etc. And the best way that we could get rid of it would be poverty rejection, decriminalizing vast swaths of non lethal drugs, even though I say this with the I don't know that we should be encouraging them or even make them fully legal, but decriminalizing them. And then we could talk about some other things you can do. But until you have that handle, And it's going to take a couple of generations to handle. Even if we had socialism in America tomorrow, some of these social problems would take two or three generations to fix, which I don't think anybody likes to hear.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, though, like how drugs are wrapped up into all of this stuff, because a recent guest we had on, she was talking about the reason that she took various substances when she first started as a teen was because it was fun. It's the big part that's missing from a lot of the drug debate is that A lot of them are enjoyable substances at first, but it makes a lot of sense. The picture you're painting, no wonder people are like, "Eh, if I'm going through all these things and I don't believe that there's a place for me in society or in the future, then it makes sense that you go, hey, look, right here I can have some sort of sense of a buzz. You see, still, this is less
2: of a problem now than it was in the 1990s.
0: The drugs part. Right. Like...
2: The violence yeah, part of that's tied into that culture, right? But this is not what's driving most kids. Most kids are too addicted to their cell phone to go out and the drugs. I'm not being, like, right, to Jesus, yeah. completely frank, flashy numbers on the screen that gives you a dopamine hit is fun at first, so it increases your anxiety and everything else. But, yeah, I know what to do a lot of recreational drugs, and in my, in, uh, my generational cohort was the cohort that was probably doing, like, a vast majority of them, which is Gen X, older millennials, I used to be really fascinated with this because, for example, kids, drug addiction, and let's say lots and lots of recreational sex that is unhealthy, not using protection, et cetera. Where would that happen in the 1990s? You'd always see it like in places where there was nothing for kids to do. I places, urban places where all the, the public spaces have been removed. We have three decades of that. The only reason why I think it's not a bigger problem, and this is where I'm going to, for all we want to blame smartphones. Smartphones keep people entertained enough that they don't do a lot. It is cheap enough to access. So they're they're not doing the fun drugs because they're playing the stupid video games or watching the fun TikToks. Like, there is a... And I know that sounds very naive, but I, I have real evidence for that. So it's just... I have, when everyone talks about like these social media things, I do think there's they're pernicious. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but I can't. You can't. Everyone talks about this stuff as if you're not looking at this larger social spectrum and the way they all interrelate. So yes, there's downsides to, to TikTok. There's downsides to Instagram. Downsides to Facebook. There's definitely fucking downsides to Twitter. Although most kids don't use Twitter. Twitter is a literati thing, honestly. What we see, really, is that there are some social side effects to this, as far as the standpoint. Although sometimes I'm like, you know what? Maybe it would be good for these kids to have sex. I don't know. <laughs> Why? It's not. It's a dangerous thing to say, and particularly in current society. And I, I know I'm not encouraging young kids, but like, you're meeting people who aren't dating well into their twenties.
1: Teen sex has dropped. Teen drug use has dropped. And a huge part of life, like why overdose has gone up is not so much of use, but supp- the street supply being ex- very potent. Iron law prohibition and all that. Yeah. And again, it's also one of those things where, yeah, like the attitude towards sex has seemed to change in, in many ways with my These generation. pro-sexual
2: identity, but they're, they seem pretty uninterested in actual sex, which I think is (laughs) like,
1: Yeah, and granted, obviously, the people that I come across are not necessarily representative cross-sections of society, but some of the 18, 19, early 20s-year-olds that I have seen, because one of the things that I do is try and provide sexual health information online, is a lot of them are having unprotected sex that they are absolutely not enjoying at all. And that's what really breaks my heart is that of many activities, sexual activity should be something that if you're going to partake in it, you should enjoy it. I, I no longer know the state of sex education in the United States anymore. It pretty much
2: um, doesn't exist which in which is, a lot of states. Which
1: was the impression that I got from speaking to a lot of people. So there there is a lot of misinformation. But one of the things that, that's our generation in terms of like condom use and testing, because we grew up partially in the era of AIDS before all the antiviral treatment, Right. right. That was, like, the only time where condoms and testing, it feels like, w- became at least something that could be broached more openly?
2: Yeah, it's not anymore. One of the things you can say, if someone gets the STI now, that, that the social consequences feel more severe. And one of the things that I was going to add to that is, like, there's an overexposure to kinds of sex acts. But it does seem like there's a deficit of enjoyment, right? And I was reading recently some studies talking about like, oh, rough sex in college. You know, I, that's a bear of a term. I don't want to get too much into what that means. But it's considered now a majority habit of college here. Uh, but it actually seems to, even when totally consensual and seemingly enjoyed, the fears and anxieties around that seem to be one of the many factors that are discouraging that. So one thing I'm going to say, and I don't want to sound like a prude here, but since so many people's exposure to sexuality is primarily through the ubiquity of porn and particularly some kinds of porn, that's changed sexual habits dramatically. We do have to acknowledge that beyond all sexism and exploitation or whatever else you see in that, that it's had larger... Implications, but not really the ones that we thought. All right. And it's not just about like consent problems anymore. There's still plenty of there's still plenty of rape culture, if you want to call that. But it's, it's not just that. And the unrealistic expectations, the. So. I, I, I need to do some like cultural norms. Like young people, younger millennials, consumers do not see the point of sex in movies because they see them pretty much as always exploitative and not, and like they have very little purpose other than titillation. And there's also a lot of weird equilibrium amongst college students right now, guilt and morality, where people are super accepting different sexual lifestyles and practices, but also like super tied up in how they. Are how those practices are, are now politically perceived. And I find that fascinating. Like, the amount of anxiety of politicizing in your intimate relationships in some way, it's actually becoming a barrier to those intimate relationships themselves. And you definitely see this in young people, and I think you see it down into to older high school students, like 16, 17-year-olds. They don't, for, by and large, a lot of them just do not date. And it's not because they have less time. That's not the reason. Um, If they have less time, it's because they're spending it on other things, but they're not spending it on jobs. They're much less likely to work people very recently. There's been a little bit of reversal, but not a lot. They're not spending it on studying homework. So what are they spending it on? And then the old boomer in me wants to yell about Snapchat and TikTok, and I'm sure that's part of it, but it's not that even that's not all
1: the impression that I get from a lot of younger young adults is the amount of social anxiety people have around other people seems to be a lot more like pathological and intense. So on one hand, we have Less bullying and less bigotry. And the curious thing about this whole thing is that in an environment of less bull- bullying and less bigotry, you would think that sociality would increase. But on the other hand, it's also not increasing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is something that I've been pondering for a while. There's a couple of speculative ideas I have of this, but I'm caveating this on this. I don't have proof. One technological mediation of social interaction actually leads to the atrophy of certain kinds of skills, but you still pick up the information because you're still human, but you don't know what to do with it. But what do I mean by that? When you interact with someone through a text and through a screen, you actually don't have to read body language and all that in the same way. You, uh, you actually offsource a lot of that to the app or to Emoji or to whatever. And that's perfectly reasonable and not bad. But if you do that as your primary form of social interaction for a long time, when confronted with actual social interaction with people you don't know, where you're alert and also picking up on these signals, but you don't know you're picking up on these signals, it's going to be overwhelming. That's one theory I have. There are some people who are playing with this idea. I haven't seen anybody really do a lot with it yet. Two civilian society is real and it's normalized. The idea of a private world and a private life has almost been deleted between for people under 35. As a 40-year-old, who sometimes, you know, not just as a teacher, but also I'm a leftist and an actor, so I deal with a lot of 20-somethings a lot and, and 30-somethings. When I was single and dating a few years ago, I was also dating some people in their 30s. We had completely different attitudes towards privacy. Now, I get that. We get, well, has been normalized and we get, there's a certain amount of, you just shouldn't shame and stuff anymore. But also, it makes every action where you are being watched and observed and potentially broadcast at all times. So now you have the anxiety of always playing yourself. This is something the theorist Bung Cho Han talks about, and I think he might be on to something there. But I see the number of 504s I get for anxiety. 504s are a kind of federal accommodation for educational accommodations that are legally binding, but they're not for like, quote, special ed, unquote. They're for medical conditions. And we've seen an exponential increase in those. Part of that is that you can get them from a doctor and get a lot of benefits from them. So not to sound somewhat cynical, but middle-class people will use them. But also, <laughs> for, there's, it, seriously, it was part of that scam, like people might remember six or seven years ago where there's this massive... Leach scam about testing modifications. The 504s were how a lot of those testing modifications were gotten that allowed for a lot of the cheating rings. But I also think there's a real increase in these, because a lot of them are like poor kids who had a doctor diagnose them with anxiety. They are poor kids, meaning they had to really fight for the parents to go get that diagnosis, to go to a clinic. you know it's probably not easy for them to get. It must have been really debilitating for them to use public services in the United States. To are to pay the hundred bucks for your copay or whatever for your crappy end of Obamacare insurance to go get that. That would have been a major cost to their families. So I I think that's pretty sincere. I don't think that anyone's gating the system with that. We've seen an exponential number for those morning value. I have a bunch of kids who literally, if you ask them to stand up and give a speech in front of people, I've had this happen more than once. It's required in our standards to do it. So there's been times where kids did not have those accommodations and I have to make them do it and they literally go into a panic attack. Panic attack? Yeah, just straight up panic attack, start balling up. And like, I, this has happened at least four times in the past five years. It doesn't happen to me so much anymore, because when they do this public speaking mediated through a computer, they actually feel a little bit
0: safer. Um, uh, so last week, Ekoi and the guest Megan had this thing that they were saying, that confidence isn't necessarily walking into the room thinking you're the shit it's just that it's the belief that you can learn whatever situation you're put into that you have a trust in your own ability to navigate the environment you're about to be put in and it makes a so much sense what you're saying about if everything's being mediated through screens then social interactions you, like you said, there's all this extra information. You feel overwhelmed and then you have anxiety. And it's like the complete polar opposite end of feeling like I can learn. I can figure this out. I believe that I will be okay in this situation. Instead, it's like you said, like a panic attack, right? That's the dots I'm connecting at least. I don't know if that has a basis in reality.
2: Yep. And I think also when we talk about incels and love and, you love, pe- and love amongst young people, People have pointed out that, oh, these dating apps only encourage you to care about the most superficial elements of you. true enough, Actually, I think there's some truth to that. But there's also something else. It outsources all the skills that you would have to develop to understand if someone is receptive to you or not. Because if they're on a the dating app and they click the yes, that's already done that work for you. Therefore, there's all kinds of issues about consent bring it back to this issue, that it's now going to be real anxiety producing because that's now offset to an app to some degree, right? You don't have to read people's body language. You don't have to deal with the subtleties of kitchen and the way people broadcast that. I do think it's a great thing that now increasingly we just say it. <laughs> as, a, as an old dude who's been in the dating pool a couple of different times in my life, it's a lot easier when you're just like, it's just yes or no. But I think there's a whole lot of social resources that you still, even in those physical interactions, have to understand how to navigate people's emotion that you've all sourced to other things. That's perfectly natural. Like people, when people talk about this, they want to get blaming about it, right? And I'm like, no, fuckers, is, everybody's lazy. Like that, it, it is natural to be lazy. You got to conserve resources to survive. You want to, hard work is good for you. And also some ways, though, if you work yourself ragged in the wild and you don't have to, you're also pretty easy prey. So not to over-extrapolate from uh, evolutionary biology, which, again, evolutionary psych is a highly questionable field. But in this sense, I do think, like, I studied anthropology in college and it just seems like, yeah, of course we can serve resources. Duh. Who doesn't? Right, and so these apps really do help you conserve resources, but it does come at a cost. Just, and some of the cost is not going to be. For example, there was a cost to rote memory when we learned how to write. Like we have evidence of non-literate cultures who have like oral re- traditions that are pretty highly accurate. That involve massive memorization and memorization of things that aren't just linguistic. Even we have pretty strong evidence from those cultures, that there was a trade-off when we learned to print, when we learned how to write. That trade-off was totally worth
0: it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, it links to a question I had, which is that in in the same way that in the period in time when books were being mass-published and distributed, there was a huge moral panic about them as well and that there was deep concern that people were just disappearing for hours into these books and losing their humanity, to, to what degree, you said earlier on about being the old man shouting at clouds, like to what degree is some of this stuff like just, it's just different. It's not our era. To what degree is it just moral panic and to what degree is it like points of concern? So it's really hard to disentangle angle of
2: that. One thing I will say, however, that is different, you own your books. You do not own your social media. You do not control it you are controlled by it. It is an immersive experience which feeds you what it thinks you want. And it will shape your taste in doing so. In a way that, like, television tried to, but, like, this is
0: way more... You have way more data to be fine-tuned about it. But, but could you not say books... I was thinking of the book and the movie, Into the Wild. That guy well, was very much inspired by some of the books he read to go out into the wilderness. Walden and stuff like that. Books get, have social
2: cost. All knowledge. of This is one thing I just want people to be more realistic about. Like, all of this is a trade off. I think the difference now is that there, a book does do a lot of things, but it's really affecting your memory, affecting your executive function. So are screens in general affecting your executive function. But there, there's, you're offsorting more and more of yourself. And with the advent of these machine learning things, which I don't really think are, cheap. Unlike intelligences, that's not my proposition, but they are going to offset a whole lot of, of like small intellectual work, the way that machines and robots offset a lot of small physical work. They're going to reduce socially necessary labor time. Specific. That, in and of itself, is not a bad thing, right? It's actually not a bad thing. It's a bad thing in the context that we currently exist. In. These technologies would not necessarily be bad if they weren't also something you didn't own and you didn't really have full access to, and you were at a disadvantage if you don't have access to other things, etc. cetera. Now there's always status access problems between human beings once you get past like relatively subsistence in high egalitarian societies. Right now, one of the things you said about this anxiety is we're now aware of those status schemes and ways that in modern society we haven't been. So What do I mean by that? In the 20th century, yes, there were vast disparities of wealth, but you don't interact with those people. Most people you interact with are effectively your peers. In the UK, there's some offset of that because you have a formalized pre-modern class system that's still hanging around. But in class, in class, anxiety feels fungible. But also, it's partly because you deal with peers most of the time. For example, I always talked about who I used to think was rich. And these were people who made in the 90s $80,000 as opposed to my parents who made like 30 dollars Okay, that's a lot of money per year, per lifetime, but we're still actually in the same social product. I don't have any access to that. I didn't have any access to the actual Ritchie, but I was very well educated and moving in very elite circles amongst Ivy League graduates and stuff due to a job I had as a professor for a while and then when I taught at national schools. That's when I learned what real wealth and what wealth disparity was. That's not something that I experienced. So in some ways, it's interesting, and I think we have to think about this in terms of anxiety, but also why people think they can even get these things, right, is because there's, in the United States in particular, there's such a segregation between, not just races, but classes. There's a bigger segregation between classes than races in the United States. And poor people interact with people of other races all the time. Not so much. There are places where it breaks down, churches, Las Vegas, etc. But in general, there's not a lot of overlap between even subclass. It feels very flattening, and it feels like you're being judged by your pose always. But you see these things now on social media that are thrown in your face. So it feels like you could do that.
0: Yeah, yeah, because it's yeah, The, right experience in your of the hand world is a like, It's literally right. in your hand.
2: So it's not just aspirational, but it's also aspirationally depressing. Conversely, a lot of the way the left handles this, and, I, and this I am going to sound like I'm chastising, but I think it's correct, is to treat people in this like they're victims. That does not make people feel better. That does it help them. That doesn't relieve their suicidal ideation, doesn't offset resentment, nor does it give them any answer to the problem. So to tell people they are victims of underprivileged or other privileged people doesn't actually fix the problem. And this is why all this resentment really starts to spurn up. because on one hand, you experience the world relatively egalitarianly in a way that our ancestors like 200 years ago
0: don't. And on the other hand, you're being constantly exposed to how unegalitarian the world actually is. Part two of this conversation continues over on our Patreon. However, it will be available in one week's time for free. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons. Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, Elizabeth McKechnie, J. Daniel Richer, Fontaine. Hartley Wilmoth and Sean Vernado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this
2: program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head.
0: And if you want to hear even Even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Interpersonal Update, on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.